Bow with me in prayer before we start. Father, we thank you that you are present here with us tonight, and we thank you for your faithfulness, your goodness. We thank you that we are part of your called-out ones. We thank you for the word that you've given us. And we thank you that you will anoint your word to our ears and that your word will always remain sharper than any two-edged sword, living and powerful. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us tonight through your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, every time I would prepare to speak anywhere, it's a sobering thing. I know many of you all think that those of us who speak up here, we just get on the Internet and download a sermon because you probably maybe think it doesn't matter what you hear, but it matters what we hear. And to always feel that somewhat of a weight as you prepare something should be present. I think, for anybody who claims to be someone to preach or teach the Word of God. It's just that serious, to me anyway, that I don't find it a light or flippant thing to ever do. And yet, I found in preparing this message, I don't even know where the inspiration came from, I really don't, but in preparing this message, I ran the whole range of emotions, from tears to joy to rejoicing to everything you could imagine. And I picked First Thessalonians, if you would turn there. And what I want to do with First Thessalonians is I don't really want to be long tonight. I don't know how long I'll be. But 1 Thessalonians is a letter written from a man who had established a church. And he was writing to this church because he so much loved that church and longed to be with that church. And yet he was separate from that church. And he writes a letter stating quite a few things. It's not a letter like he would write to the Corinthians where he had to deal with gross sin or or problems of divisions and things like that, or the Galatians where the legalists came in and were trying to undermine their faith in Jesus Christ. It's a letter where there's, there's no warnings. There's no rebukes. There's nothing there but praise for this church. That's us, that perfect church. Maybe someday. But I did go to, Karen and I went down to Somerset to participate in the witness of a wedding. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this wedding and I I thought it was an excellent ceremony. It was was very well done. I, I was just... I just watch what happens, and like we all do at a wedding, we'll sit there and we'll watch, and maybe we think about our own marriage, or we'll think about someday I'd like to 
be one of those single people joining with another. And Caleb said a few things, and I don't know that his his wife-to-be said anything, but it's implied. And it was, in viewing this wedding, you saw two people who were about to join together as one. And in that new relationship, they were going to bring from their past things that they had learned from their parents, from their church, from their pastor. They were going to bring those things to this marriage. And they were going to bring things that were from their past. And I thought, what a thing. I mean, Caleb made mention of it, but I thought, you young people in here who have had the benefit of good godly parents, of an example of godly parents, and of other members in this church, and a pastor that set an example for us, what an advantage you have. Because you have something now to draw from. You have something that you bring from your past, and you bring it right into your present. And it causes you to live a life that's honoring to God, or it should be. But not only did they have that reserve, not only did they have those good things from their past, they had an expectant hope of their future together. So what they had was their past. We got to experience their present. And they're now in their future. And that's what we all have, isn't it? We all have a past. We all live in the present. And everyone in this room should have an expectant hope of the future. Or, as we know some, they remain in the past. They remain in their failings, their shortcomings, things that now Jesus Christ has dealt with and He wants to move you on. But there's so many people, not, not in this room, but people we've known who are constantly looking back. Remember back in the 70s? Remember back in the 80s how it was? We don't do that. We, we draw the good from the past we move it into our present, and then we look forward to the future. We don't stay in the past, do we? Any one of us in here that's living in the past, either under the guilt and condemnation of sin, you're robbing your present of what God has for you today. And you're drawing away from your future. Because we know that what we do today becomes tomorrow's past. And we know that sometimes we've made bad choices. And that affects our tomorrow, doesn't it? And if we stay there, it affects our future. So we all have a past. Some are not that good. Some of us maybe didn't start out with such a good past before Jesus saved us. Gave us a new beginning, a new life created us as new creations. But every day since you've been a Christian and you've heard the Word, you've prayed to God, you've sought His face, you now have a past that you should be able to draw from. 
And you should also be looking to the future. So as we look at this church that Paul is writing to, the Thessalonians, the church at Thessalonians, I want us to think about these things. I want us to think about three things. Things to remember, things not to forget, and things that we have in the future. Think about this. There are things that we should always remember. Because those like Caleb and Megan, they draw from. They remember when their parents taught them and gave them an example. And they go, how would dad have split this wood? Well, I'd make it easy on myself and get a log splitter. So they had an example. Or, you know, he got one of my siblings to do it for him. But we have an example. And hopefully, you as parents are striving to be an example to your children. Because someday, they're going to need that to draw from. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul... Silas and Timothy are greeting this church and they're writing to them and it's the church of the Thessalonians. In verse 2 he says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Here's Paul, no longer in the midst of these people who he dearly wants to be with, these people who he has established, who he's preached the gospel to, seen their conversion. That's why he can say, you are the elect of God because you now have received the gospel that we brought to you. You've proven to me and to yourselves that by believing the gospel that, that we brought to you, you are the elect. You are the chosen of God. And he gives thanks to God for them all. Wouldn't that be nice to have Paul give thanks to God for us all? I'd like to think that our pastor gave thanks for us all. Because that's what a man, a devout man of God who cares about people would do. He would give thanks for you. Because you are God's elect. But he thanks them and he mentions three things. Three graces that are characteristics and exemplifying the Christian's life. And that's faith, hope, and love. And he mentions the work of faith. That's the working reality of your faith. This is faith demonstrated by works and actions. It's faith that's demonstrated by how you live. It's what affects you at the core of your being that demands of you Action demands of you a way of life because you believe something. You believe Jesus is coming back. He could return at any time. Do you live like that? Because if you don't, I'd have to question your faith in that. 
Do you believe that one day you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account? If you do, I guarantee you your life is lived differently. But he mentions also the labor of love. The toil of unselfish, self-denying acts of kindness to those in and outside the church. Friends, I could do better at this. Because when it's a labor of love, that means to toil. means to work to the point of exhaustion. And there are some in this assembly here. In the last 11 years, you have taught me more about God's love than I've learned previous to all the years before. And it's because why? It's because you showed it to me by how you lived. I saw God's love in action. That's what the world wants to see. That's what the world or doesn't want to, but that's what they need to see. They need to see you and I as the elect, the called out ones, demonstrating the love of God, not only that we love Him, but we love one another. And we labor at it. That doesn't mean we do it falsely, does it? It just means that God's love is always looking to give and do and help. And then he says, our patience of hope or steadfastness of hope, the patient continuance in the confident expectation of his return and all that is related to that. In this context, you can imagine these people. Paul had already been chased out of Philippi by a mob of angry gospel opposers who gathered together all their thug buddies and said, let's get these guys out of here. They're corrupting the Jewish faith. And they ran them out of Philippi. And where do they go? They run home, right? And they hide. I can't take it anymore. Nobody else needs to hear the gospel. I've got it. I'm going to go home and hide from the mob. They don't do that. Where do they go? Do they go to the next city? They go here. At the risk of their own selves so that the gospel can be preached to others. Tell me that's not love. Because it's done at the risk of their own lives. They know that angry mob's not too far behind. They know that what they're preaching is opposed by the religious world. Yet, they stop here to share the good news. Because they know how great that news is. And that every man should hear it. And have the chance to prove whether or not he is the elect. So one commentary sums up that three-word phrase and says, Remembering, the apostle would say, Your faith, hope, and love, a faith that had its outward effect on your lives, a love that spent itself in service of others, and a hope that was no mere transient feeling, but was content to wait for the the things unseen when Christ should be revealed. Oh, that we would be like these people. I can't think of anything greater. Because he goes on to say in verse 7. Actually, verse 6, and he says, you became, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction 
with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Acacia, Acacia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. They were examples to their entire region of their faith, their love, and their hope. What a testimony. What a testimony that we in this assembly here could be known for our faith, our love, and our hope, and that the community would just know that the Word of God comes forth from us to that community. And in chapter 2, Paul and company, Silas and Timothy, they're doing this amid much opposition. You and I, we face a little conflict out in the world when we testify to somebody and we... Yes, he's not chosen. Or we don't want to go somewhere where it's dirty, ugly, and the people smell. Because it's going to be hard. It's going to be a bother. Somebody might get mad at me. Somebody might throw me out of their house. How important is it for us to preach the gospel? How important is it for others to hear the gospel that we have? But here are the things that should be remembered. He wants them to remember the manner in which God's Word was preached to them. Because Paul's going to launch into a series of what they weren't, but what they were. And in the midst of these people, they got to witness men of God who lived it, who proved it, who demonstrated who were approved of God because they had been put to the test. And these people could see it the whole time they were there. He says in verse 5 of chapter 1, you don't have to go there, but it says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Why? Because as you know, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. They knew something about these men, didn't they? They watched their lives. They saw how they lived. They saw how they acted. They saw how they treated other people. They were witnesses to men of God who were preaching the Word of God to them. And because they could not only get a... a sense of the power or the Holy Spirit was powerful among them, they were also assured because they saw the effect on their lives. They weren't just men that were there to gain an audience, were they? They were men who cared about those people in Thessalonica and cared enough to stop at their own risk and share the gospel for as long as they could until that angry mob caught up to him and drove him out of there. And that's why Paul writes this. 
Because now he's been driven away from these people. But he wants to remind them. And he wants them to remember things. In verse 3 of chapter 2, 3 through 6, he mentions a lot of things that they were not in the midst of their assembly. He says, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time do we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of co- for covetousness. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. What a list. What a list. I thought about this list, and I thought, I thought, why did I move 300 or 630, I think it's 635 miles away from a home I had had for nearly 30 years and a business that was as successful as it was going to get. Why? Because I needed to hear the gospel from someone I could trust, from someone that I knew was all of these things. was all of these things. He was not preaching deceit or error. Never had an impure motive that I would know of in preaching. Never preached the word like so many do today, deceitfully trying to trick you into believing something that's not true. Why? So I get some money. A man that can preach who doesn't care about pleasing men and only cares about pleasing God. That's who you want. That's who I move to. No flattering words, no cloak of covetousness. Never seeking glory from men, either from you or others. That's the kind of people that you can trust, isn't it? Those are the kind of men, as Paul, Silas, and Timothy are reminding that those who heard them preach the gospel, because these people are now at risk also, aren't they? Not only are they associated with Paul, but they've now received this very gospel that is being opposed. They have to know, don't they? They want to be assured that what we've heard and what we've now placed our trust in is God's way of salvation. And we watch these men risk their lives and not ever preach to us in a way that was deceitful, trying to gain our approval or glory from us. The glory that a man would receive from you or others by preaching some well-crafted sermon, big Whoop. Big whoop. We are people in this room. Paul and Silas were saying, 
Our heart's desire was only to do and speak the truth to you because we love you. We care about you. We're not here to deceive or trick you. And they knew it. But he goes on to say the things that they were. Not only does he give us a list, Paul reminds them of the things that they should remember about them as they were there with them. But what were they? Verse 7. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. Know how devoutly, devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Gentle. It doesn't say weak. It doesn't say weak, but gentle. You know, there are people in this world that need gentle. They don't always need you sticking a finger in their face, telling them they are wrong and straighten up and come on and and whipping them with something. Sometimes gentleness is what people need. Paul, Silas, the apostle Paul is saying, along with Silas and Timothy, we were gentle. Why? Because we cared about you as a mother would care about her own children. I'm pretty sure I know plenty of mothers in here who care affectionately and deeply for their own children. They had that kind of an affection. It says that they imparted not only the gospel, verse 8, not only the gospel, but also their own lives. Oh, that everyone in this room would look at those men, would look at these words and go, Wow. Someone not only willing to talk to me, preach to me, teach me, correct me, but is willing to give me his own life. In Philippians, Paul talks about being poured out for their sake. We can do the same, can't we? Can you and I pour our lives into each other? Or is that just not something we want to do anymore? Or maybe never. They were devout. They were just. They were blameless. They behaved. In verse 11 it says, They exhorted, they comforted, and they charged every one of those people as a father does his own children. Exhort, comfort, and charge. You as parents, you as fathers, if you're not doing this, you need to think about how much you really care about your children because that's a necessary part of raising children, isn't it? There's going to be a time to exhort. There's going to be a time to comfort. There's going to be a time to make a charge. 
so much easier to just make a charge. Stop doing that. But that's what these men did in the midst of these people. I think we should all strive to have these characteristics more and more with each other as his church. They were also to remember what was preached to them. Not only who they were in their midst, but they were to remember what was preached. Back to verse 5 of chapter 1, it says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. They preached the gospel, didn't they? They gave them the gospel. And then, and you don't have to turn to these are right there, but they preached the word of God. Verse 6 of chapter 1, it's called the Word. They preach the Word. 2-2 is the Gospel. Verse 4 of chapter 2 is the Gospel. Verse 8, he says the Gospel. Verse 9, the Gospel. Are we Gospel-centered people? Because I think every time somebody speaks, there ought to be Gospel in it. There ought to be something in there about what Jesus Christ has done for us. Otherwise, we're just coming up with some really neat altered magazine articles to talk about. And I don't care about any of that. It's the gospel that causes us to have entrance into His kingdom. It gives us what we need to have faith in what He's done. It's the gospel that they preached. In verse 13, he says, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. (laughs) You know, when somebody's teaching the Word, when somebody, you know, this is not, I know we don't look at it this way, but this is not just paper with ink on it. This is a message to us. And yet, what does he use? Feeble men. Frail individuals who have an ability to put words out of their mouth. That's what you're hearing, right? It's just sounds coming out of people's vocal cords and out of their mouth. But I appreciate those people who I knew today while I was looking this over that I was being prayed for. There was something about that. Because you and I need to be praying that when a man has something to teach out of the Word that we're going to hear God's voice. Who cares about the man's voice? You and I need to hear His voice. We need to hear the words that come out as if they're from God, because they are. It's God speaking to us. So like the Thessalonians, we remember not just what was preached but we also remember the character and the lives of those who preach it. Because the two have to go together. I'm sure you've seen, well, maybe you haven't. I shouldn't say I'm sure. 
But I've seen men who preach. And I don't think they have a life to back it up. They're only preaching because it's a nice career to have. It's not a career, is it? It's never been a career. And yet there's so many that go to school to learn. I'm not taking anything away from school, but I'm just saying there's people that do nothing but choose preaching and teaching or pastoring as a career. I don't want a career man, do you? We don't want career people. We want some people like Paul and Timothy and Silas. So they became followers of Paul and Silas and of the Lord. Because what? They saw the Word of God manifested in their lives. They saw Jesus, right? I mean, they presented Jesus to them by all of their actions. So they followed them. In 2.14 it says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans. We have not yet, and I say yet and I don't hope or wish for it, but we have not yet suffered and had to stand up and stay faithful like these men we read about in the Bible. Churches who are being persecuted, people being pursued by angry mobs. We don't want to think about that. I don't want to. I don't want that to happen. I like living at peace. But let's take this time of peace and make all the application we can to what we've heard. Don't take it for granted that none of that will ever happen in this country. Because when judgment comes upon the house of the Lord, it comes. Then there are things that should not be forgotten. And I see those. Verse 13. It's how they receive the word. See, we can remember past. We can remember who, who. They can look back. They can look back and they can remember Paul, Silas, and Timothy, right? They can look back and they can remember these men, the examples they had and what they preached. But they also need to not forget in their present the things such as how they received the Word. We read in verse 13 that they received it as the Word of God. If you don't think Someone is preaching the Word of God. You need to quit listening. Is that fair? If you don't think somebody's truly preaching the Word of God, why would you listen? There's too many people can put together a bunch of Scriptures and make something sound really logical and good, can't they? It doesn't mean it's the Word of God. It doesn't mean it's... it's uh, inspired and comes through those like Timothy and Paul and Silas who were approved. He says that they received the word of God which you heard from us and they welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as in truth the word of God which also effectively 
works in you who believe. Things that should not be forgotten is how the Word of God has an effect in your life. Is the Word of God still powerful enough to have an effect in your life? When it's preached, it should have an effect in your life. We need to not forget that receiving and hearing the Word of God has an effect in your life. You should see that effect in your life. Now Paul, in chapter 3, as I've said, Paul has a concern for this church. He's not there any longer. He had to flee. He knew what was coming upon them. He knew that the persecution was going to follow right after he left and was going to be on these people. So what does he do? He sends Timothy. He sends Timothy to find out how they're doing. He wants to know. And he wants to know if someone has come and tempted them. Whether the tempter has come and disrupted their faith. Because these men would come behind Paul all the time and do what? Try to destroy the faith that they had in the gospel that Paul preached. He's concerned. So he sends Timothy. And in verse 6 of chapter 3 it says, But now that Timothy has come from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. He's comforted by the fact that these men, these people, this church has not succumbed to the tempter. They have not given up the faith that Paul so earnestly implanted in these people through the Word of God. He was comforted and reassured and happy and glad, whatever you want to say, that these people had not failed. They had not given up. They had not caved in to the persecution. We need to not forget, as they should not forget, or were told not to forget, that their faith and their love had not yet been perfected. Their faith and their love had not yet been perfected. And yet he says that these people were loving. All he's doing is he's encouraging them to continue on. Continue on in the faith that you have. Continue doing what you're doing as far as the works of faith, the labor of love, and the persistence in the hope of Jesus Christ and His return. Verse 10 of chapter 3, this is what Paul says. He says, He says, Night and day he was praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. And we look at that phrase and we don't think anything lacks in our faith, but here they were only receiving the gospel for a short time. Paul so desperately wanted to get back to them to bring them more. To expound the gospel even greater. Maybe I'm putting words in his mouth. I'm trying to think about what Paul came was, was trying to perfect in their lives. He wanted to encourage them to continue on 
in the faith. And even though he remembers their labor of love in chapter 1, he prays that love would continue to increase. He says in verse 12, he says, in the same prayer, he said that you may walk properly. I'm sorry. And that the, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we to you, do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. He wants these people to increase and abound in what they're already actively doing. Can we ever say we're loving enough? Can we ever say we've loved enough? I've, that's it. I've done. I've got it up to here. I've filled up the measure with how much I can love and that's it. How about your faith? Can it go any higher? Can we believe God for more? Because who's the one that's faithful? It's Him. But He's wanting and He's praying that they would increase and abound in love to one another. We think about what does it mean to abound? Well, the word means to exceed, of exceeding a certain number, exceeding a certain number or measure. It can mean abound in quality or quantity. Remember when Jesus fed the 4,000 and they gathered up that which remained? Same word. It's that overabundance. It's that more than enough. It's that excessive amount. Oh, that we loved each other in this room to a superabundant, excessive amount. Wow. Something that has no measure. It's exceeded a certain idea or measure of what it means to love one another. And I'm not going to read it, but 1 Corinthians 13 will tell us what love is. He wants these people. He prays for them that their love would increase and abound even more. We're not to forget these people here. Paul's reminding them in chapter 4 and verse 3. He's reminding them that they preached the word faithfully and in the midst of turmoil and opposition. And in four one it says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. You know, you come to the realization as you get a little older. It shouldn't come when you're older. You young people, some of you young people, your whole lives ought to be about walking to be pleasing to God. That ought to be the drive in your life. That ought to be the motive for your life. 
is that everything I do, is it pleasing to God? Because that's why the Word is preached to these people. It's why it's been preached to us that we would walk a life worthy of God and His kingdom. He says in verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Sanctification, that thing which separates you from the ungodly, isn't it? It's to separate from them. The Word of God preached should have an effect on your life and mine. It had an effect on these people in that they were taught to be sanctified separated from the world, separated from the unclean. And then he talks more in there. I don't know why we would need to say this. We don't need to say it, but he needed to say it to these people in this church. But in verse 11, chapter 4, he tells these people that they should also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. You know, when I look around in this church, I see a lot of hardworking individuals. I really do. I think that's something that has been taught and it's had an effect on your life as it should. But these people here... If you can picture a community of people having having meetings all the time and they're having love feasts and you got these idle freeloaders who are just showing up at everybody's house going, I don't need to work. Look, there's a meal here every day at somebody's house. Isn't that what he means by in Second Thessalonians? If you don't work, you don't eat, buddy. Hey, you're not bringing anything to this uh, picnic we're having. You never bring anything. In fact, you know what? I don't ever see you working anywhere either. This isn't, this isn't a time for you to just join with us and just benefit from us because we love you and we'll feed you. Uh-uh. That's what he's saying. We're not to be idle people. We're not supposed to be taking advantage of other people's generosity, are we? We're supposed to work hard, have mind our own business, earn our own living. I don't think that exists in here. Maybe it does. Maybe it used to. Maybe it will someday. Somebody might come in here and go, hey, look at these people. They're as generous as I've ever seen a church. I think I'll just come in here and sit and complain about all my problems because they'll just keep giving me stuff. At some point, somebody says, yeah, you got to get some of your own stuff. You need to bring a little something here if you're part of this. Isn't that what we're saying? So we need to be hard workers. We need to make sure that we're not just busy bodies and idle and, and just looking for a handout, which I don't think we are here. And then the last thing is the things that we look forward to. And Brother Mike Guthrie hit every point that I could ever make. He covered it all, didn't he? But in the book of Thessalonians, which is where we're at, in chapter 4, he wants these people to know something, doesn't he? 
He wants them to remember the things that we can have a hope for in the future. And in verse 13, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. My heart's desire is to be with the Lord. And to know that those in our assembly who have passed on are going to rise first. Because God will raise them up. And nothing can stop God from doing that. In chapter 5, verse 8, he exhorts these people. He says, But let those of us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. There we have that faith, love, and hope again. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. And whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God said what He will do, will He do it? And then Paul writes some final exhortations to the church in verse 14. It says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. To those in this world who are the elect of God, this is how we should live. We should be like these people in this church. Because this was written to the elect, wasn't it? We are elect
verse 23. He says, Now may the God of peace himself, and we heard about peace in a testimony tonight, didn't we? The God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Like the Thessalonians, we have things to remember, we have things not to forget, and we have things to look forward to. He bought us. He bought His church with His own blood. He gave Himself for us. He is the one who builds His church. He is the one who has built His church and established it in this earth to display His glory. He is for us and not against us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... We thank you for your word, Lord, your word of encouragement. We just thank you that you are for us. You care about us. You know us. You are with us. We just ask, Lord, that your living and powerful word would reside in our hearts that it may have the effect that you desire for it to have in our lives. May we become those who desire nothing more than to walk in this life to be worthy of you and of your kingdom. May we find that the choices we make and the things that we say are pleasing to you. May we become a church that abounds And is ever increasing more and more in faith and in love. We thank you, Lord, that you are the faithful one who will preserve us. You will keep us. You will guard us. You will protect us. Father, we pray for the Richardsons, Lord, that you would give them traveling mercies and just keep them safe on the road Lord that your blessing would be upon them we thank you Lord that you are a good God and that you have provided for us everything we need spiritually and physically I pray that you would bless each soul in this room. That you would, through your Son, cause us to be transformed into his image. That the world outside of these doors would know that the word of God is here. And that you have called us to be your people. We thank you that you do all these things for us. We humbly 
ask for you to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Stand to your feet, please. Greet one another and tell someone God is still on His throne. Amen. You are dismissed.